All right, well, I just heard we're having some problems with the slides, so um, I was told to stall for time. So, uh, uh, <laughs> so here's some jokes. <laughs> uh, I did actually um, want to say, I didn't have it written here in my notes or anything, but I heard that there was um, God at work with a gardening project over the weekend. Um, I know Eric was kind of spearheading that, uh, but there's quite a few people that showed up to help out. There were some neighbors involved um, giving some heavily discounted lumber for the gardening project. So just a big shout out and thank you to everyone involved with that. And there's not a whole lot uh, of my slides that will be needed until uh, further down in my sermon, so I think I'll just get started. But uh, Good morning, everyone. It's both a, a great honor and a slightly terrifying pleasure to be up here before you today. Um, <laughs> Uh, attempting to like teach or explain the Word of God is kind of a heavy deal, so I certainly don't feel worthy, but uh, a pastor friend of mine told me that if, uh, if you start feeling like you deserve to be up here, you probably need to take a closer look at yourself, so <laughs> I guess that's good, but uh, you know, I'm out here, and hopefully it can be an encouragement to anybody that's uh, looking to step out into a ministry or, or be involved in the church that doesn't feel like they quite are ready for that, so all I can do really is um, you know, pray. Hope the Spirit's up there working with me. So with that said, uh, please join me in asking for his help. Father God, you are a good, good Father. Your power and love is, is boundless. We can't, we can't even describe it. And we just ask that you would pour that love and, and power through us, that we would be a light to those around us, that we would show the, the compassion that you have for us to, to one another. And Lord, we just ask that you would Open our hearts, uh, open our eyes, keep them focused on you. Uh, let, us, um, let us accept the truths in Scripture that you have for us. Pray that it would be a changing uh, and positive influence in our lives. So uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Aaron Mason. Uh, about nine years ago, I met a young lady by the name of Shelby Fleck, who uh, decided to not be here today. <laughs> but uh, Luckily, she fell for me just as hard as I fell for her. Uh, I honestly believe with my whole heart that God intended that we meet and get married. And I won't go into the details of the day we met right now, but I love telling that story. So if you want to flag me down some other time, I'd be happy to share that with you. Uh, when I first started, started dating Shelby, I, I wasn't a believer yet, uh, which I know worried her a bit. You know, Paul's warning to the church of Corinth to, to not be unequally yoked with non-believers weighed on her mind at times. But uh, as I mentioned, though, I think God had planned for me to be with her. A uh, common reference we hear in Scripture and, and Christian lingo is, is planting seeds. Uh, I prefer the uh, hip check method. Yeah, so before coming to Christ, I was, I was just making my way through life. Um, you know, I was pursuing the American dream. I wanted to go to college and get a good job, get married, have the white picket fence, you know, the whole, the whole deal. Um, I had zero belief or interest in anything spiritual, and uh, the path I was treading it ultim ultimately led to death and eternal separation from the Creator, and I was merrily trampling along that path, and I was like, no one's going to change my mind, and I didn't really have any, you know, any desire to. But then along came Jesus, and he had different plans. <laughs> now, I didn't get a visit from an angel or, or hear you know, a voice from heaven, but uh, Jesus decided to use one of his favorite tools, Christians. Just like, just like you and me. Uh, Christians, people walking with Christ on their own faith journey and living lives empowered by the Spirit would come alongside me and give me a little hip check of truth and a little bump of love and 
a little check of compassion, and next thing I know, I'm turned around, I'm walking the you know, completely opposite direction. And just those little nudges that, that kind of kept correcting my path. And then, you know, at one point I look up, and, and I'm looking at Jesus, and I'm curious. And I'm like, what is this spirit you guys all have, and fills you with hope and joy, and, and how do I get that, you know? It wasn't until I was ready, um, facing him, that the Lord opened my eyes, which, you know, that getting over that hump of unbelief was, was a little difficult for me, but um, that's another story that I'll tell you guys some other time. I really don't have time to get into right now, uh, but I do love telling that one as well. The point is, whether we know it or not, and whether it's through our words or just through our day-to-day activities, we, we Christians are evangelizing all the time. Oftentimes, those small acts of kindness, love, and support that we show to one another can be some of the most impactful testimonies that we can share. And you can see the same idea reflected in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas through their first mission trip, as described in Acts 13 and 14. So last week, we heard uh, from Pastor Scotty about Acts 13. Uh, it was the beginning of Paul and Barnabas' journey. It's their first mission trip. And it got off to a pretty wild start. You know, after proclaiming the word of God through the island of Cyprus, they had a run-in with a false prophet and sorcerer. Um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was blinded by mist and darkness, which was enough for the proconsul of the time to, to come to faith in the Lord. And upon leaving Cyprus, Cyprus, they eventually made it to a city in Antioch, where they were invited to speak in the local synagogues, as was the custom of the time. Their first sermon generated so much interest that... Scripture tells us nearly the entire population of that city in Antioch came to hear them the next week. And I looked it up. Uh, according to drivethroughhistoryadventures.com, seems like a reliable source, um, the, uh, the population of, of that city and the surrounding areas was nearly 100,000 people. And, I mean, we're talking long before stadiums and, and massive venue halls, so to have that many people show up to hear two strangers speak must have been pretty incredible. Now, the Jewish leaders of the area, they were jealous, jealous of the response the gospel received from the people, so they stirred up opposition and trouble for these two men, eventually expelling them from the city. And I love the example shown by their reaction. These two guys get thrown out, told they're not welcome, people are plotting against them, and, and what do they do? They're filled with joy and spirit, they shake the dust off their feet, and they keep right on trucking down the road. Which brings us to chapter 14. Now, when I was writing this outline, I think I must have had probably 12, maybe 14 different lessons to take just from these few verses. So I had to pare it down or else I'd be up here for hours. And you, you guys probably have plans later today. So I got it down to six, six points of scripture we can learn from this chapter. So with that said, let's dive right into Acts 14, picking up in verse 1. At Iconium... Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst both Jew Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. 
but they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So let's take another look at verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. It brings me to my first point. The gospel is polarizing. We have to accept and expect that to remain true. I feel pretty safe saying that we still see similar results from sharing the gospel nowadays. According to the National Congregational Study, there are an estimated 380,000 Christian churches in America today. People are coming to Christ and spreading the gospel in communities around us every day. On the flip side, we see God being removed from schools and public places, secularism on the rise, and a cultural shift away from the Christian message. I think this cultural negativity towards faith is one of the prime reasons we're afraid to speak up about Christ when we have the chance. When it comes time for each of us to step up and share the gospel with those around us, we're afraid of rejection, we're afraid of maybe damaging our relationships, maybe if we're younger we're afraid of being made fun of, but I think we're, we're focusing on the wrong side of that polarizing nature of gospel. And it's only natural. Human beings, for some reason, seem to have a, a built-in fascination with the morbid. We're focusing on the negative side rather than the positive. The McGill University of Canada performed an experiment and studied exactly this effect in 2014. The researchers brought in people under the pretext of a study of eye tracking. And the volunteers were asked to select some stories about politics to read from a news website so that a camera could make some baseline eye tracking measures. It was important that they were told that they actually read the articles so the right measurements could be prepared, but it didn't matter what they read. The results of the experiment, as well as the stories that were read most, were somewhat depressing. Participants often chose stories with a negative tone, corruption, setbacks, hypocrisy, and so on, rather than neutral or positive stories despite the fact that most people claimed in a survey that they preferred good news. So, here's what I challenge each of us to do. Next time you have an opportunity to share the gospel and you start to worry about what that other person will think or how it might damage your relationship with them, instead, try to imagine the best case scenario. What would it be like if this was the moment that Jesus was waiting for to open their eyes to him? If the Holy Spirit, speaking through you, were to shine light into their innermost depths, what if this conversation could be the turning point in their lives that led to a change of heart? How amazing would it be if we were to share gladness, share the gospel with that gladness and hope in our lives? How would it feel to have your brother or your sister or a son or, or a daughter who isn't walking with the Lord sitting here beside you today, learning from Scripture and growing into an ever-deeper relationship with Jesus? How would it feel to have that longtime friend or coworker have their life transformed for the better by the grace of our Lord? Imagine what it would be like if every single one of these seats were full with the neighbors from Bentley Street and, and nearby uh, neighborhoods here worshiping with us. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? 
You might be thinking, I don't have the right words, or I don't know enough to do that, and you might be right. But we must always keep in mind that it's not by our strength, it's not by our power or knowledge that people are saved. It is by the power of Jesus, and not our own, that people are saved. He is the one who opens their eyes and brings them into a relationship with himself. We just have to be willing to let him use us to start that conversation. The first verse we just read is a great example of this. It says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. It doesn't say that everyone of the Jews and Greeks believed. We, of course, know that many did not, and some even plotted against these two. But the important point to focus on is that despite some opposition, there was acceptance. A great number of people believed. As we learned in these past few weeks, the book of Acts is telling the story of the spread of the early Christian church. It could only spread and grow like we know that it did if the gospel was making an impact on people's lives. In Acts 2.41, it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. In Acts 4.4, we have, But many who heard the message believed, and so the number of men grew to about 5,000. Acts 14 tells us, I'm sorry, that should say Acts 9. Acts 14 is telling the story of Paul and Barnabas' first missions trip. Yet just a few weeks ago, we heard about Paul's life before he became a Christian. The first verse of Act 9 describes Paul, then called Saul, as a man who was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. An example of polarization doesn't get much stronger than that. Yet the rest of chapter 9 shows how even the most vehemently opposed to the word of God can have their hearts changed. And Paul went on to be one of Christ's most devout followers. I could probably spend the entire time up here just listening to examples of God working despite some who rejected his grace, bringing hope and new life to those he has called. Now, Scripture isn't hiding anything here. Reading it, we can clearly see that when we spread the truth of the gospel to those around us, we will find people hungering for truth and ready to believe. And the Lord, through his power, not ours, will move in their hearts, in their minds, and in their souls. There is fertile soil in which to grow spiritual fruit surrounding all of us all the time. We don't share the word of God hoping or looking for those who will reject it. No, we share the word of God hoping and looking for lost sisters to adopt into the family of Christ. Instead of being discouraged by the potential idea that we might encounter resistance to the word, I say we ought to take the opposite stance. It should be an encouraging sign that we're on the right path. Now, an interesting idea was pointed out to me when I was discussing this chapter with a friend. Well, let's go back to verse 4 and 5. It says, The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. Now, let's look at another couple of verses uh, from the previous chapter that might state this a bit more clearly. It's Acts 13, 48 through 52. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. What can we see here? 
We see that as the gospel has a greater and greater impact, it faces greater and greater opposition. It's probably a safe bet to assume that had Paul and Barnabas stood up in the synagogue in Iconium and preached a message on their own power, relying on their own persuasiveness, a message that fell flat and was ignored, or otherwise had little to no impact, they would also have been ignored and left to do their own thing by the religious leaders of the time. It wasn't until those of power and influence with the Jewish faith saw their own followers turning to Christ that their fear and jealousy led them to plot against these early missionaries. The polarizing nature of the gospel led to many believers in Iconium, but it also led to such opposition that Paul and Barnabas had to flee for their lives. They did not, this did not discourage them in the slightest, however. Following the Spirit's guidance, they simply carried on down the road towards Lystra, which brings us to the second section of Acts 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called up, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth, and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got, back up and went, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Here we see Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and I think it's really important to note the different approaches they take. Speaking to the Jews in Acts 13 and at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas make frequent references to the Old Testament, including uh, Psalms 2, 89, 16, 1 Samuel, Isaiah 49 and 55, Habakkuk 1. They were using language and context that their Jewish audience knew and could relate to. When standing in front of the Greek audience, however, you don't hear the Old Testament references. They instead reference the rain that waters their crops, the food that fills their bellies, and the joy that comes from the many graces that God has provided to everyone that walks this earth, whether they call on his name or not. Ultimately, it is up to us to share the message of Christ in language and context that our audience will understand. I will say, it certainly doesn't hurt if you can command someone lame from birth to get up and walk, and he does. But this miracle of healing, you know, it's while a blatant and obvious example of the power of God at work, doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't equally at work amongst all of us to this day. It's just as powerful now and still at work 
among us right now. The same power that Paul and Barnabas allow to flow through them to perform such miracles is living inside each one of us who has accepted Christ as our Savior. This might look like the Spirit leading you to reach out to a coworker that is struggling with uh, the isolation that's brought on by COVID, or maybe it's, it's helping a, an injured neighbor with some physical chores around their house. Uh, could even be helping out that single mom down the road the, whose car just broke down and with a little bit of automotive know-how. Rarely do we see how much stress and pressure those around us are feeling. And sometimes even the, the smallest gesture can make a world of difference. The last example I just used, for instance, was one I took from memory. My mother worked hard and sometimes worked herself to the bone to take care of our little family. When our car stopped working, maybe I was eight, nine years old, money was tight and, and she didn't know what to do. And she always hid those kinds of things from us kids pretty well. But uh, thinking back and, and looking, looking at it through my memories, I could see the stress was, was eating her up. And uh, a part-time mechanic at our local church heard about this, and he was able to get her car fixed up. He refused to accept any payment. And I just remember my mom crying in gratitude. And he didn't come here and drop some Old Testament verses at her or even New Testament verses. There was no, you know, gospel shared at that moment at all, but it was the love of Christ, you know, actively having an impact in her life. And those are the kinds of things that, that we should be looking for. Besides speaking the gospel in context our audience understands, I see two other important lessons we can learn from these verses. The first is a warning against the subtle danger of pride. It can be all too easy for us to take credit for God's work. Paul and Barnabas could have used this miracle and the resulting fervor of the Greeks to exalt themselves rather than God. It's natural to desire acceptance and affirmation from others, but when we make God's work about ourselves, we're in trouble. Maybe we've been praying and praying for a more compassionate heart, and then we run into that annoying neighbor that just talks and talks and talks, and we actually manage to handle, we actually manage to handle it with, with grace and a smile. But do we thank God for working to make us more like Christ, or do we pat ourselves on the back for putting up with the annoyances with a good attitude. I could tell you which one I'm guilty of. We must keep Paul and Barnabas' example in mind by remaining humble and, and always remembering that it's the work of the Spirit in our lives that brings about sanctification with us and the work of the Spirit in others that brings about change within them. Nothing we ever do or say can save ourselves or anyone else. It is always Jesus at work within us that brings about change within. The second lesson is that whenever we do encounter misunderstandings or misconceptions regarding our explanation of the gospel, we must be quick to correct it. Paul and Barnabas did not let the pagans exalt them. They were humble and quick to point out that they were merely human, just like the men and women they were standing amongst. Now, we do want to take care and make sure that when we are correcting these misunderstandings, that we do so with kindness and grace. We are not aiming to criticize or condemn anyone. Simply make sure they come to a full understanding of what Scripture says. Now, unfortunately for Paul, his time in Lystra did not end on the happiest of notes. The Jews that had it out for him in Iconium caught up to them in Lystra and convinced the crowd to have him stoned. Afterwards, they drug him out of the city and left him for dead. 
Uh, interesting side note I found during my research for this is that even Paul didn't know if he died or not from this stoning. The stoning at the time was the death sentence, but in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, we read this passage. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in, in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I kind of find a, a certain poetic beauty in God using these hateful acts of those refusing to believe the truth as a means to bring Paul divine revelation. Either way, Paul miraculously recovers, and what does he do next? Keeps right on trucking down the road. He just wants to continue to spread the word of God. He refuses to let setbacks and disappointments distract him from the message of salvation. In Derby, we see yet another iteration of the same pattern we have seen nearly everywhere these two men have traveled and can be summed up in one sentence. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Now, the final portion of chapter 14 takes a bit of a turn from the polarizing pattern we've seen and starts to point out what should come after the gospel has found root in people's hearts. Uh, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done, all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there they stayed a long time with the disciples. The two key statements that jump out to me here are they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them. And they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I think we've all heard how important it is to encourage children when they're young to instill them within them a sense of confidence and a willingness to persevere through difficulty, but you don't often hear the same for adults. Here we have a clear example of the same need for encouragement within the church. I like the analogy of walking with Christ because it carries with it a call for movement. While we yet live on earth, the sanctification process is not an instantaneous event. It is a process of continuous, continual growth and change. The thing about any long journey, however, is that we are going to run into problems. The path forward at times will be rocky and difficult. When we have other Christians around us encouraging and strengthening us, those times of weariness, times of doubt, uh, they become so much easier to overcome. Personally, I believe the God uses those hard times to help strengthen our faith. I actually like to call them faith muscles, in fact. When we want to get stronger physically, 
what do we do? We lift the heaviest weights we can. When that weight becomes manageable, we up the ante. Now, lifting weights by yourself can be dangerous. Uh, take the bench press, for example. You're laying there on the bench, arms out in front of you, and you're, you're pushing up as hard as you can. Maybe you lift it up easily a few times before you get tired, but eventually you get to a point where it's just too much, and, and that weight's soon threatening to crush you. If you're doing things safely, that's when your spotter steps in. All along, your spotter was standing there next to the bar, ready to give you a little help to get that weight back up off your chest and roughly resting safely on the frame. On an individual level, I think it is our calling as family to be there as a spiritual spotter for one another, to give that little bit of help we all need at times to get through life's hard and ugly moments. It works on a corporate level as well. It is encouraging and helpful to share each, with each other how God is moving in our lives. When we share those God moments we experience with the church, it reminds us of the love and the power of Christ that we can all too easily miss if we're caught up with the minutia of our day-to-day -day lives. We get to focus on the hope that is in Christ and rest in the power of God who stands with us and what a powerful God he is. Everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, they spread the word of God. Yes, there were outraged Jewish leaders and mistaken pagan priests and even demonic sorcerers. Yet in the face of all that, God's power brought Paul and Barnabas back home in one piece and through them brought the forgiveness and grace of Christ to those who otherwise may have been lost. Their faith in Christ and his power was so strong they didn't even hesitate to return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch where they already knew there were people in high positions that had attempted to have them murdered. What would it look like if each one of us had the same faith and trust in the Lord as these two men? That even knowing they were walking back into a scary situation, they could focus on the grace and power of Christ and were willing to risk discomfort to bring that same life-saving, hope-giving truth to their neighbors. For a first missions trip, Paul and Barnabas had a, a pretty wild ride but there are a lot of lessons for us to take away from their example that we should keep in mind as we seek to have the same impact here in Hillsborough that Paul and Barnabas had about 2,000 years ago. First, the gospel is polarizing. We must accept and expect that to remain true. Second, it is by the power of Jesus, not our own, that people are saved. Third, we must share the message of Christ in language and context our audience will understand. Fourth, when we see God working, we must remain humble and give the credit where it is due to him. Five, when we encounter misunderstandings during our sharing of the gospel, we must be quick to correct them. And six, we should be a spiritual spotter for one another, strengthening and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we just, we thank you. You've opened our hearts to you, invited us into a relationship with you. I just pray that you would keep our eyes focused on you, that you would soften our hearts to your message, to your word, to your truth, that you would bring us into ever and ever deeper relationship with you, and that through that relationship, we could shine your light into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.